Well, good morning. <clears throat> Great to be with you. As Robert said, I was going to take a couple minutes at the beginning and just tell you what I've been doing and give you a bit of an update. Um, Therese and I have now been with MTW in Cape Town for 12 years. I mean, it's really kind of staggering to think it's been that long. Um, but Evergreen, as Robert said, has been with us from the very beginning. You started supporting us before we actually reached the field. And so we have so appreciated uh, not just the financial support, but your faithfulness and prayers and, and the many friendships we have here. So just a delight to be back with you. Uh, I'm now the Regional Director for Southern Africa. And let me just tell you a little bit about Southern Africa. Southern Africa is different from South Africa. South Africa is the biggest country in Southern Africa. But Southern Africa is comprised of 11 countries. And it's about an aggregate population of 200, 000, or 200 million. And South Africa is about 30% of that. And MTW has seven missionary units in three different countries and one in the US. We're, we're in Malawi, going from north to south, Malawi, Zimbabwe, and South Africa. And we're doing various things like church planting, uh, university ministry, theological education, children's ministry, kind of a, a, a number of a variety of different things. Um, my role is to support them and shepherd them. In the past years, I've taught at the Bible College there in Cape Town and in other venues where I've had the privilege of mentoring and training pastors who have not had the opportunity for training. And more recently, I've taken on the role as the regional director. And most of what I'm doing is I am working directly with three very young and formative Reformed Presbyterian churches and presbyteries in Malawi, in Zimbabwe, and in South Africa. And let me just give you kind of an example of the youth of these, of these works. So in South Africa, we have two particular churches. We have three church plants, and we have three men who are in a church planting residency program who in the next year or two will also plant churches. And what we're trying to do as MTW, and me in particular, is facilitate church planting. And that involves raising funds to, to help uh, assist these works but also providing training. And let me just give you an example of what we're trying to do. So church plants and church planting doesn't just fall out of the sky. It needs to be fueled. And so some of the things that we're doing to fuel um, uh, church planting is one campus ministry. So just like in the US, RUF has been basically a leadership development arm for the PCA, we're looking to establish that same thing in South Africa, in Zimbabwe, in Malawi as well. The other ministry that we've identified to fuel church planting is church leadership development and theological education. They kind of go hand in hand with the development of the church. So once you have some churches planted, 
you want to establish presbyteries. So in terms of the, what results from church planting would be presbytery development. And uh, as a 50-year-old denomination, we take lots of things for granted. Uh, we, have, we have scores of healthy churches. We have scores of presbyteries that have healthy committees and are functioning well. Uh, we have enormous number of teaching elders and, and ruling elders who have decades of experience each. And then you come to, these, to this fledgling work where most people have come out of either uh, Pentecostalism or they've come out of prosperity gospel. They've never really stepped into a Presbyterian church and still they started attending. So what's a session and what's a presbytery and how, what's a plurality of elders and parity? You know, I'm just used to the head man telling everybody what to do. So in terms of transitioning people from where they've been to our structures is really where I've been spending lots of my time because what are we going to plant? Well, we're going to plant Reformed Presbyterian churches, and for them to be healthy, they need to have healthy structures. So we have sponsored a Reformed Presbyterian leadership conference that we just had in April where we brought in all the teaching elders, ruling elders, and interns in our, church, in our churches from Malawi, uh, Zimbabwe, and South Africa. We had about 70 together, and then we brought in actually the moderator of the PCA, Fred Greco, who did three days of training, and it was just um, eaten up by, uh, by these, um, these men. Uh, also, we have a book of church order in the PCA that some of us scoff at and groan about. But when you don't have one, you need one. And so we're in the process of, of helping uh, these presbyteries form BCOs. So presbytery development is another result from church planting. One last thing that we're focusing on is foreign missions. So in Africa, for years, they've been receivers of missionaries. And we're trying to help transition from being only receivers of missionaries to also senders of missionaries as well. So in the, in the coming years, our hope and prayer, and even today we're working towards this, is to ultimately establish an African Reformed Presbyterian sending agency where we are, we're, it's run by Africans, it's funded by Africans, and Africans are sent out, trained um, uh, for the work. So that's our vision, that's what um, I spend my days working on and praying about and putting my hand to. And then Trez is with me in all these things. Um, she is standing behind me, helping me in uh, all these endeavors in one way, shape, or form. She has a vibrant hospitality ministry. She's investing in women, individual women. And then she's also very involved in a, a continent-wide um, women's ministry that MTW has established. So, those are some of the things we've been involved in. Uh, thank you for standing with us. Thanks for the privilege of being with you today. And um, as we transition now to God's word, let me pray yet again for us. Oh, Lord God, we thank you that you are a providential God. And because you rule and you are in control, we don't have to be anxious about what's going to happen to us.
that we can have peace and contentment knowing that you are in charge. Help us now as we consider these thoughts from your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So how is it going to work out? How is this ever going to happen? What does the way forward look like? I find myself asking those questions a lot. Maybe you do too. 25 years ago, I had a pretty strong sense that God was calling me back again into vocational Christian ministry. And I had a sense that it likely was going to be some kind of a teaching ministry overseas. But I felt like I needed to get better equipped to do this. And so I wanted to get yet another master's degree. And the only realistic way to do this would be part-time. And so the problem was I didn't have the money to do this, and I didn't have the vacation time to do it. So I kept asking myself, how is this ever going to work? How is this going to happen? Well, within a month of submitting my application for my, my program, I got the answer. So I worked for a large bank, and what's typical for these kinds of corporations is that they want to make sure their salaries are competitive so that they don't, they don't lose employees. So from time to time, they do market studies, and they check on their salaries. Well, they just happened to complete a market study at that time, and they determined that my position was underpaid by $10,000. And so I got a $10,000 raise without doing anything. So there was the money that I needed for the program. Well, two weeks later, they announced the results of their market study of vacation time. And I got two more weeks of vacation. And there was the time I needed for the program. So I personally experienced the truth of scripture from this. I learned in a fresh way that I don't need to be anxious, that I don't need to be fearful when I don't know how it's going to all work out. Now, this was clearly God's grace to me. It was God's mercy to me. But it was also an example of the providence of God. The providence of God is where God, in his own sovereign way, arranges circumstances to accomplish his purpose. This is where God orchestrates events in such a way that his will is done. Now, the Bible doesn't give us a definition of the providence of God. In fact, the term the providence of God doesn't appear anywhere in the Bible. But there's a verse in Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11, that kind of captures this whole concept. And Paul says in Ephesians 1:11, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him, who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So Paul isn't saying that God works all kinds of things according to the counsel of his will. Paul isn't saying that God works certain things according to the counsel of his, of his word. No, Paul is saying that all things comprehensively, all things without exception, all things exhaustively work according to to his will. 
So Paul is saying that in some way, God stands behind every breath you take. And he's working through every detail of your life to accomplish his purpose. And this should be absolutely great news for you because since God is providential, you don't need to be anxious. You don't need to be fearful when you don't know how it's all going to work. So we're going to look at a few sections in Scripture that show God's providence in action. And we're going to do this so you can be convinced that this is who our God is. And that you can have peace when you don't know how it's all going to work out. So let's start with the Old Testament patriarch, Joseph. Let's see God's providence in action in his life. So turn with me, if you will, to Genesis 45. Genesis 45, and we'll look at a few verses in just a moment. But God made a promise to Abraham that he would make him a great nation, that his descendants would be as numerous as the sand and the seashore. But just two generations later, that promise was at risk. Joseph and his family were in a famine, and they faced extinction. And this whole promise to Abraham risked falling to the ground. But then God uses a cocky, arrogant, runty kid named Joseph. So he was so arrogant that his brothers wanted to kill him. And they decided that that may, may be a little bit overkill, and so they decided to just throw him into a pit. And after some time, while Joseph is in this pit, some Midianite traders just happen to come by, and Joseph's brothers see an income opportunity. So they sell Joseph to these Midianite traders. Well, these traders just happen to sell Joseph to Potiphar. Potiphar was the captain of Pharaoh's guard. And you know the story. Pharaoh's wife tries to seduce Joseph, and when he resists, she falsely accuses him of making sexual advances, and then Joseph lands in prison. Well, two of Joseph's cellmates just happen to be key officials of Pharaoh. One is the cupbearer to the, to the king, and the other is his baker. And both of these have dreams. And then Joseph interprets, interprets these dreams with God's help. The cupbearer learns that he's going to be released and restored to service with Pharaoh. And then the baker learns that he's going to be hanged. Well, Pharaoh eventually just happens to have a dream that no one can interpret. And the cupbearer just happens to remember how Joseph was able to interpret his dream. And so he brings it to the attention of Pharaoh. And Pharaoh's dream has to do with a famine. And then Pharaoh just happens to make Joseph second in charge of Egypt after he successfully interprets this dream. And he's going to be the key to bring about famine relief. And as this famine begins to bite throughout the region, Jacob sends his sons to Egypt to buy some grain. And they just happen 
to run into their brother, Joseph. Now, there's, there's lots of twists and turns in the story, but Joseph re- relocates his family to Egypt to save them from the famine, to preserve his family, and also to preserve the line of Christ. But there's a couple strategic points in the story where Joseph summarizes the whole purpose of this event. And the first is in the passage in Genesis 45, when Joseph reveals his identity to his brothers. Now, as we, as we read these verses, notice how Joseph sees that God is behind all the things that happened to him. Joseph had a really high view of the providence of God. So beginning in verse 4 of Genesis 45. So Joseph said to his brothers, Come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the, for the famine had been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep you alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and the Lord of all of his house and the ruler over all of the land of Egypt. So that's the first key point here. The second key point is right after Joseph and his brothers bury their father Jacob. And, and Joseph's brothers thinks that now finally Joseph is going to take revenge. Finally, he's going to pay them back for all the evil that they've done to him. But here's how Joseph handled that. And it's those famous verses in chapter 50, verse 19 to 20. And the narrator says, But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for I am in the place of God. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So when Joseph was lying in that pit, when Joseph was being sold off and carted away in slavery, and when he was being locked up in prison, he had to be asking himself, how is this all going to be, how is this all going to work out? What's the way forward here? Yet God was gracious to Joseph because years later he helped him to see that all things that happened to him happened according to the counsel of his will. All these things that happened to Joseph didn't just happen to happen randomly. They happened for a purpose. And Joseph repeats that purpose three times in these verses. He talks about the purpose was to preserve life and ultimately to preserve the line of our Messiah, of our Savior. Nothing just happens to happen to you. God works all things according to the counsel of his will. So you don't need to be anxious. 
You don't need to be fearful when you don't know how it's all going to work out. We also see God's providence in action in the story of Esther. Esther is the only book in the Bible that God's name isn't mentioned. And yet he's invisibly orchestrating all the events that are happening according to the counsel of his will. In Esther, there's a threat to the survival of the line of the Savior, just like we saw in the Joseph account. And by God's providence, this threat isn't just neutralized, but it's totally turned on its head. The account takes place when Israel is controlled by the Persian Empire. And the first major event that happens in the book is that the queen of Persia disobeys the king. And because of this, she loses her position. And then there's an empire-wide search for a replacement queen. And this wasn't a small empire. Uh, it ran from India to Ethiopia. There were 127 different provinces. And by the end of this massive search for a queen, a very unlikely candidate is appointed queen. In fact, she's not Persian. She's a minority. And then she's a Jew. And she happens to be Esther. She just happens to become queen. Now, both of Esther's parents had died. And so she was raised by a close relative named Mordecai. And Mordecai loved Esther. And he continued to keep close tabs on her, even after she had become queen. So one day, while Mordecai was outside the king's palace, he just happens to overhear two men who are hatching a plan to assassinate the king. So Mordecai gets this word to Esther, who then tells the king, and these two men are hanged. And Mordecai's good deed just happens to get recorded in the book of the Chronicles of the King. In the meantime, Mordecai falls out of favor with one of the king's officials, a man named Haman. So Mordecai refused to bow down and give homage to Haman. And since Haman was such a proud and evil man, his ego couldn't absorb that insult. So he has this over-the-top reaction to Mordecai. He takes the matter to the king, as was read earlier, and he gets the king to agree to kill him. But not just Mordecai, but all Mordecai's people, all the Jews. So Haman goes off and he builds the gallows that are going to hang Mordecai from. But it just happens. While Haman is getting ready to hang Mordecai, the king has insomnia. And he just happens to lull himself to sleep by reading the book of the Chronicles of the King. And he just happens to read the section that mentions Mordecai's good deed. So he goes into the office the next day and he orders Haman to honor Mordecai the very person Haman was looking to hang in just a couple of hours. And in the meantime, 
Esther is courageous. And she goes to the king and she, she informs him the plan. She begs him to stop Haman's plan to kill Mordecai and ultimately the Jews. Now, since the king had just happened to learn that Mordecai was a hero, he was outraged with Haman. And when he comes storming into the room to confront Haman, he just happens to walk in at the moment that Haman falls on Esther's couch to beg for her for forgiveness. But the the king thinks he's assaulting her. So when the king tells his servants to hang Haman, there just happens to be gallows ready-made for the occasion, made by Haman himself. So you know how the story ends. The Jews are not only saved, but they're honored. Only God could orchestrate events so that his people go from the brink of annihilation to being honored in the kingdom. Here we see a remarkable display of the providence of God. He's working all things in this account according to the counsel of his will. He's working all things to preserve his people. He's working all things to preserve the line of our Savior. This is the providence of God. This is the same God you serve today. And when you read this, you need to see that you need not be anxious. You don't need to be fearful when you don't know how it's all going to work out. Our God is working all things for your good according to the counsel of his will. So these examples from Joseph and Esther each have to do with God preserving his people, with God preserving the line of the Savior, for God doing a major work in salvation history. But does God just orchestrate big events? Well, no. Because we see God's providence in things that are much less, of much less consequence. We also see his hand in the salvation of ordinary people. In Acts chapter 8, Philip is having a fruitful ministry in Samaria. But God sends him from there to share the gospel with an Ethiopian eunuch. This eunuch just happens to be sitting in a chariot reading the book of Isaiah when Philip comes in and sits next to him. And the passage in Isaiah that he just happens to be reading is Isaiah 53. And the verses he just happens to be reading are verses 7 and 8, which say, Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearers silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? And for his life is taken away from the earth. And then the eunuch turns to Philip and asks him, who's the prophet talking about? Is he talking about himself 
It was someone else. And then the passage says, Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told them the good news about Jesus. So how's that for a divine appointment? Something like that can only be arranged by the providence of God. One final example. God's providence is so comprehensive that it not only covers the most important issues, issues like salvation history, issues like personal salvation, but it even covers really insignificant things in nature, things like birds and grass. So in Matthew 6, Jesus says that he feeds the birds of the air, little creatures that can't sow or reap themselves. He also says he clothes the fields with grass. And then he reminds us that this grass is here today, and then tomorrow it's burned up. So even insignificant things, things that just have a moment, God's providence covers even them. But notice the application that Jesus makes in this passage. He says, don't be anxious. That's the conclusion. That's the application from his providence. So we read in Matthew 6, beginning in verse 25, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food, and your body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow, they neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God clothes the grass of the field, which is today alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows you need them. Since God is providential, you don't need to be anxious. You don't need to worry about your next meal. You don't need to worry where your next pair of shoes will come from. You don't need to be fearful when you don't know how it's all going to work out. Our daughter Stephanie was in, while she was in university, she had a really challenging time finding good housing situations. So when she was in her last year in school, she really wanted to live with Christians. But all the Christian gals she wanted to live with had already made commitments. And so she was left scrambling and she ended up needing to sign a lease with four gals that she didn't know. And as time went on, 
two things happened. First, she learned that the housing situation she signed up for was going to be a really bad situation. And then second, a slot became available in an apartment with some really nice Christian gals. And so we encouraged her to jump on the opening and we would pay both leases and then we would work with her to get someone to take her out of that lease. So during that summer before the last year, we worked and we strategized on how we were going to find someone to take her out of that lease. We encouraged Stephanie to put a notice in campus housing. We encouraged her to go talk with real estate agents. Uh, she posted signs on campus. She posted a notice on her Facebook page. Well, she did all these things, but nothing happened. And when the school year began, no one had taken the lease. And, and who rents a college apartment after the semester has begun? So we had run out of ideas, and we started to get anxious. And then an amazing thing happened. We got a letter from the landlord telling us that our daughter's lease had been terminated because they found asbestos in the building. We couldn't believe it. All of our strategizing, all of our agonizing over this lease got us nothing. All the wasted anxiety because we didn't know how it was all going to work out. Maybe you're now in the spot that we were in. Maybe you don't know how it's all going to work out. Maybe you're wondering, how is that broken relationship ever going to get better? Where in the world is our country headed? What's it going to be like for my children and my grandchildren 10 years from now? How am I going to care for my aging parents? Should I take that job? Will I ever get married? What are you anxious about? What are you fearful of? Since God is providential, you don't need to be anxious. You don't need to be fearful when you don't know how it's all going to work out. Do you believe that? Because if you do, you're going to have a peace. You're going to have a contentment when you don't know how it's all going to work out. Let's pray. Lord God, we, we thank you that we serve a God who works out every single detail in our lives for our good for your glory according to the counsel of your will. Thank you that we serve a God like you. And how we pray that you would work in our hearts and grow our understanding of your providence and trust you. That we would honor you with our faith and that our anxieties and our fears would begin to shrink as you continue to sanctify us, as you continue to work in our lives. We ask you this for Christ's glory. Amen.